All right, how's everybody doing? Well, if you've been here for a while, you know uh, when I get up here, you know where we're going to be, right? Colossians, there you go. See, it goes without saying, right? We are going to get back in this letter from Paul. It's been about a, well, exactly a month since uh, we were in it last time. And we're picking up where we left off. We'll be in chapter 3. If you're using a fancy blue Bible we provide, it's on page 984. Our text is going to be verses 18 through 19. Just two verses. Two verses this morning. Now, in order for us to get properly situated in this passage, let's do a little recap of what we've heard from Paul so far. Up until this point in his letter, his exhortations have been to the church as a whole. His commands to the church is that you are to be living your lives by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be seeking and setting your minds on Christ. You are to be clothing yourselves with the virtues of Christ, namely love. You are to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and you are to let his word dwell in you richly and do everything in his name, that is, with his glory and his reputation in view. Now that last exhortation, which Paul gave in verse 17, makes it crystal clear that every aspect of our lives should be lived out in subjection to the lordship of Christ as an act of worship. Whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is worship in all of life. All of life should be lived in subjection to his lordship as an act of worship. Paul wrote... Whatever you do, everything, word or deed, do in his name, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That shows you the kind of obedience it is. It is joyful obedience, gratitude for the grace of God, for all that he has done, offering up your worship willingly, freely, joyfully. We are to make it our ambition to do all things according to his will and ultimately for his glory. And to do that, we certainly need his word dwelling in us richly, which is the exhortation in verse 16 that we looked at last time. So the commands that immediately precede our text this morning are, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and do everything in his name. And that brings us to verse 18, where Paul moves on from giving exhortations to the church in general to giving exhortations to specific groups of people within the church. Before it was to everyone, now it's to specific groups of people. It's at this point in the letter that Paul turns his attention to where? The home. The home. The realm of the Christian's personal life. He said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words... Our devotion to Christ and our submission to Christ and our worship of Christ are to permeate every aspect of our lives. And since your daily life begins and ends in your home, 
since your home is the base of operations for your personal life, it makes complete sense that this is where Paul would now turn his attention to. First things first. Let's talk about the home. So the new section we're stepping into runs from chapter 3, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1, and it makes up what is commonly referred to as a household code, which is a code of conduct for the members of a household. In the first century and throughout most of history, the household could be broken down into the following groups of people, the following relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. We'll get to that, don't worry. But most of history, that is what the household consisted of, these groups, these relationships. These are the groups that Paul now addresses in this section of the letter. Now, a household code was not some new concept that Paul was introducing, nor was it something unique to Christianity. The secular Greco-Roman society in which the early church was situated had its own household codes. However, there was a clear difference between the secular household codes of the day and the one Paul was giving to the Colossians here under divine inspiration. According to one commentator, most people in the Roman Empire in the first century took it for granted that a pater familius, a father of the family, had absolute authority and control over his household. Thus, the secular household codes usually just indicate how slaves, children, or wives should act toward their masters, fathers, or husbands, respectively. They rarely also tell the adult men how they should treat the slaves, children, or wives who are members of their household. The household codes in the New Testament are somewhat similar to their non-Christian counterparts, but also significantly different in certain ways. These New Testament texts do not give absolute power to the men, but instead require a high degree of responsibility and mutual respect for all members of Christian families. So there's the distinction. In other words, the distinguishing mark of a Christian household is that its members are not ultimately under the rule of the patriarch, but ultimately under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even those who are in positions of authority are themselves under authority. They're under the authority of Christ. So, here in this section, Colossians 3.18 through chapter 4, verse 1, we have our Lord's commandments for how we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Him within the context of those earthly relationships through which our personal lives are primarily lived out. What does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the Lord in those personal relationships, through those personal relationships that make up, essentially, the bulk of your personal life? That's what we have here. So in light of this, I thought it would be good to 
title this sermon series. Let's make it a series. We'll cover this section. And this whole section we can call Heavenly Priorities and Earthly Relationships. So this morning is part one. Part one, here we are. Paul begins with the most integral relationship in the home, and that is the marriage relationship, which he addresses in verses 18 and 19. He speaks to all the wives in the church, and then he speaks to all the husbands in the church. Now, before we read the text, I want to clarify that while this instruction is directed specifically to Christian wives and husbands, it's not just for them. It's not just for them to hear and understand, but also for the rest of you as well who don't fall into that category. This instruction is for every Christian to heed whether you have, been, whether you have yet to be married, are married, or used to be married. Why? Because it illuminates our Lord's will concerning marriage. And as Christians, we're called to understand what His will is. And that includes his will concerning marriage. Our thinking is to be conformed to his so that we might not be foolish, but wise. And also so that we might uphold the truth and accurately communicate his will to others. We're to have the mind of Christ. Here are his thoughts. Here are his words. Here is his wisdom on this subject. Now, with that in mind, let's read our text for the, this morning, we'll start, we'll start with verse 17, just to kind of keep in mind Paul's flow of thought as he makes his transition to addressing the home. Starting in verse 17, leading up to our passage, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the will of the Lord. Here Paul introduces the household code for the Christian, and he begins with the relationship between husbands and wives. And he speaks to the wives first. He exhorts them, submit to your husbands. That's the command. Now the word submit literally means to arrange under. Arrange under. Arrange yourself under. Wives are to arrange themselves under the authority of their husbands, which means they are to respectfully yield to his decisions for them in their home. Now, you can't help but notice how brief Paul's instruction is to married individuals, right? That's it. Two verses, wives submit, husbands love your wives. That's it. He's writing to an entire church, and we'll see at the end of this letter, he expects this letter to be taken to a neighboring church and read to all of them as well. And when he addresses the wives, the one command he gives them is that they submit to their husbands. This does not mean that this is the only thing a wife is to do in marriage, but what it does mean, because he could have said more. He only gave one command. Which command did he give? It says it's pretty important, right? But it does mean that in the eyes of the Lord, it, this command here, this responsibility, this duty, 
is to be the highest of the wife's priorities in that relationship. That's to be the highest priority, first and foremost. As a wife, this is where her obedience to the Lord begins. So again, it's not the only thing, but this is where it begins, in marriage. Now, why is that the case? Why? Why is it so important for wives to submit to their husbands? And again, I know this, this kind of, in our culture today, in this generation, in the pre- previous recent generations, this kind of rubs against what we're used to as far as our understanding of marriage, or at least what is popular. This idea of submission is absolutely unpopular. It's controversial. But why is it here that we find in Scripture, God's will concerning marriage, the one commandment, this priority for wives to submit to their husbands? Why is that? Because as Paul explains, what does he say? What does he say right after that? It's fitting in the Lord. It's fitting in the Lord. In other words, it's, it's proper for those who are in Christ. This is proper. This is fitting in the Lord. A wife's submission to her husband is right and good in the eyes of the Lord because it accords with his design for marriage in which the husband is the head of the wife. That's how he designed marriage. We see the basis for this all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, and I think it's worth considering what's established there. We read in Genesis 1 that at the beginning of creation, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And then it says, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, both bearing the image of God. Then, in chapter 2 of Genesis, we have a more detailed revelation from God regarding this event. We read that God made the man first, and then, having stated that it was not good for the man to be alone, God made the woman to be the man's wife, that is, his companion, his suitable helper. I will make a helper fit for him. It's not good for him to be alone. He took part of the man's side and from it made the woman. And when he brought the woman to the man as a wife, the man rejoiced. That is the reaction. It's as if he said, oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. God is good. Now think about it. Up until this point, uh, Adam had been this, the man, the first man, Adam, means man. Well, he had been busy exercising the dominion God had given him by naming the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Right? That shows his dominion. He's naming them. So he's been, he's been doing this all the way up until this point. And then God brings the woman to him, and when he saw this beautiful creature God had made, he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So notice the 
the joy, the delight, the good thing that is happening here. And Adam's naming of her demonstrates his position of authority in that relationship already. But this is an authority, don't miss this, that is exercised in the context of love and affection. There's a dominion authority over the creatures of the earth, but then there's the wife. And hey, that kind of, yes, there's, there's an authority there, but it's in this context of personal love and affection. It's an authority that recognizes that they are partners in the fulfillment of God's purposes for them. Remember, both bear the image of God. Both are given dominion to rule together, king and queen. It's probably the most similar kind of relationship we can compare it to. There's dignity in both roles. They are equals, yet there is a leader in that relationship by God's design. It would be kind of hard to have two captains, two presidents, two bosses, two heads. There's no order in that. So this is by God's design. They are partners in fulfillment of God's purposes for them. And the concluding statement in Genesis 2.24 is as follows. Therefore, somewhere around there, maybe I didn't put it in. Here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. This is a statement of the inst- God instituting the marriage relationship. So the marriage relationship instituted by God at the beginning of creation is the covenanted union of lifelong companionship between a man and a woman. A union in which the woman lovingly places herself under the authority of her husband, and the man lovingly leads his wife so that they together might harmoniously glorify God as one flesh. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's God's design. That is marriage as God intends for it to be. Sin, however, messes this up. We keep reading in Genesis. We get to chapter 3. And things go south. And this good thing that God had created is frustrated by sin. Sin entices us to rebel against authority and to be self-centered, self-serving people. And this perverts and distorts and very often destroys marriages. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to experience the blessing and goodness of this sacred institution. And if God has caused you to be born again through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, you are now free from the enslaving power of sin and are actually capable of doing marriage God's way. And as you do this, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. So, wives, the Apostle Paul says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, if you look at the next verse, you'll see that he commands the husbands to love 
their wives. You may wonder, why doesn't Paul just command the wives to love their husbands? Why does he instead only exhort them to submit to them in this passage? Surely he should add that on there. I mean, isn't, isn't that the, the greatest commandment after all? To love? It is. It is. Nothing's changed. It is. But here's what we need to understand. In marriage, a wife's submission to her husband is love. It is love. It is the primary way her love for her husband is demonstrated. This is how it is with Christ and the church, by the way. Our Lord said, if you love me, so he's speaking to all those who are his, his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, there are other ways we may demonstrate our love for Christ. But if our submission to him is lacking, then so is our love. I mean, you can, you can sing thousands of songs of praise to his name. You can write out expressions of joy and gratitude for him in your journal. Whatever, whatever. You can, you can serve the church in so many ways, but, but if in your personal life you're, you're not submitting yourself to Jesus as Lord, not obeying his commandments for you, that indicates a lack of love. So if our submission to Christ is lacking, so is our love. That's how it is with the church in Christ. This principle also applies in marriage concerning wives' submission to their husbands. So I just want you to see that submission is love, and submission is where love begins in the marriage for the wife, this expression of love for her husband. Now, just in case you're thinking that this is quite a stretch to liken the submission of the husband-wife relationship to that of Christ in the church, consider what Paul wrote in Ephesians. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, this is a parallel letter, very, a lot of similarities to Colossians. Here's what he wrote. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there's the, there's the similarity. There's the parallel. By God's design and according to his perfect wisdom, the husband is the head of the wife. And, and this order among and distinction between the roles of husband and wife are essential for a marriage to first function properly so that it may then have room to grow and flourish. It needs to function properly first before it can grow and flourish. This is the order between the roles. This is the distinction that God, by God's design how marriage is to function. So as an illustration, let's say you're going to plant a tree. It, you know, what does it need in order to grow and flourish once it's planted? Do you have a basic idea? You know, there's kind of some basic things that a tree will need in order to grow and flourish once you plant it. It needs water, it needs sunlight, and it needs nutrients. 
So I need to make sure it gets these things because they're essential. They are essential. However, the first and most basic thing it needs to it needs is to be planted in the ground properly. That is right side up for a start. You should not expect it to grow and flourish no matter how great the sun and water and nutrients are if you plant it in the ground upside down because that's not how God designed it to function. I know it's a basic illustration, but you get the idea. So in marriage, then, a wife's first and most basic responsibility is to place herself under her husband's authority and leadership so that she, along with her husband, can work towards making their marriage grow and flourish through Christ-like love and service and thus glorify God together as a team, as one flesh. Now let's talk about the husbands and their role. And wives didn't know you're thinking like about time. <laughs> Wonder when he was going to get there. See, I didn't make you say, you know, I didn't make it two-parter. Okay, come back. We're getting both of you right now. No one's safe. So we're going to talk about the husbands. What is their heavenly priority to be in this earthly relationship? Well, Paul says in verse 19, husbands, remember, he, he could say anything, but he's very brief. He gives, if I could say one thing, here's what I'm going to say. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Take note that he does not say, husbands, assert your authority over your wives. He does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. Rather, he commands them, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You know, the fact that husbands are given direct commands concerning their own personal conduct towards their wives as we said earlier, it sets the Christian household code apart from the typical secular one. You see, while the husband has authority over his wife, he is under the authority of Christ, and his authority is subject to Christ's authority. Christ's commandment to husbands is that they be loving their wives. That is to be their number one priority in marriage. This is not referring to a husband's emotional or physical affection towards his wife, although those things have their place and should not be lacking. Rather, it is referring to a relentless care for her entire well-being, body and soul. It is a selfless, sacrificial commitment to seek her highest good according to the Lord's standards. A selfless, sacrificial commitment to seek her highest good according to the Lord's standards. Once again, we can look to the relationship between Christ and the church to better understand how the marriage relationship ought to be. In Ephesians, once again, we see Paul describe in greater detail the kind of love, this kind of love, that a husband is to be demonstrating towards his wife. Back in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. Selfless, sacrificial. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ's love is selfless and sacrificial, and the goal is, the church is what? Sanctification. Maturing her good, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. One flesh union, husband and wife, care for her as you do your own body, nourish, cherish it. Maybe for some of you men, you need to do it better than you care for your own body. Love your wife in this way. But husbands, you are to follow the example of Christ in loving your wives. You are to love them with a selfless, sacrificial, sanctifying love. That's the kind of love that you're commanded to be demonstrating towards them. You are to look to their interests and consider them as more important than yourselves. You are to show your wives the same kind of attentiveness and care as you do your own bodies. Again, some of you may need to do that more since you are both joined together as one flesh. So a man who neglects to love his wife then is a fool. He is a fool. He's like a man who neglects to feed or clothe or wash himself because he's got more important things to do or more interesting things to do. By neglecting to love your wife, you're really issuing an open invitation for misery to come into your life. So if you want misery, just go ahead and neglect the Lord's command in this area, husbands. Loving your wife is the Lord's highest command for you as a married man. Do this, make it your priority, and there's blessing in it. You will be blessed. There's that saying, happy wife, happy life. Happy spouse, peaceful house. I just made that one up, but you know. The idea is the same. I kind of went on tangent trying to think of rhymes. I'm like, forget it. You get the idea, right? If the husband's priority is the highest good of his wife, there will be blessing in the home. That is the top priority. This is the hub. This is, this is where all the activity is rooted in. The husband and wife are off. It's felt in the rest of the household. And then on into life. Again, you see someone who hasn't fed themselves or clothed themselves or washed in a long time. You see, you are looking very unsightly. My goodness, what is wrong with you? You need to tend to that. Same with a husband's wife, uh, a husband's life. When we see this, there's an effect. How are you tending to this responsibility to be loving your wife? Now, because the husband is the head of the wife, he certainly has the responsibility to lead her. That goes without saying. After all, his wife is called to submit to him, that is, to his leadership. Yet, 
He is not commanded here to lead his wife, but to love his wife. Husbands, you won't lead your wives well unless you are first and foremost loving them with Christ-like love. That's how you lead them well. If you're not doing that, you're not leading well. And as the leader, although both you and your wife are responsible to love one another, absolutely, wife, you still got to love your husband, right? I mean, you're both responsible to love one another, but as the leader, you, husband, are the one who should be taking the initiative and leading in love. You should be leading in this. She's called to submit to you. Let her do this with joy by loving her as the Lord has called you to do. Marriage will thrive in the context of love, and the husband is supposed to lead the way, right? It's God's design. Marriage is supposed to be lived out in the context of love. Who sets the tone? Who's leading that relationship? The husband. He's the lead in this. How? By looking to the example of Christ and following in his steps. Now, to emphasize the great importance and priority of the command to love, Paul gives an additional command to the husbands regarding their wives. The see wives, so they get two. You just got one, they got two. If that's any consolation. But Paul gives an additional command to the husbands regarding their wives. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A more literal translation is, do not be embittered against them, as it's translated in the New American Standard Bible. The New King James and the Christian Standard Bible, formerly Homeland Christian Standard Bible, translate it, do not be bitter toward them. The action Paul is prohibiting here is that of being embittered. So it's a little, when you read the ESV, it says, do not be harsh. You're thinking, don't act harshly. The action that he's commanding against is don't be bitter, be embittered. Being embittered is what he's prohibiting. Being made bitter. Now, certainly a husband should not act harshly towards his wife. So that's fine. Read the SV, say, well, that makes sense. Yeah, obey that too. But we want to look at more specifically what Paul's getting at here. Paul is addressing more specifically the attitude or the thinking that would give rise to the outward behavior, harsh outward behavior, sinful outward behavior towards his wife. Do not be embittered against your wife. That's the command. So husbands, there will be times when your own dear wife will sin against you. I know it's hard to believe, but that will happen. She'll sin against you as you will to her. You'll do that to her. Because after all, you're two sinners living under the same roof. There will be times when you and her have some bitter experiences. Experiences. You're like, well, that was bitter. That was a bitter moment. So there will be times when you have that. But whether or not you yourself become embittered against your spouse is completely within your control. There's a difference. He's not saying, don't ever experience anything bitter. It's like, I'd love to, please tell me how. I mean, you can't control circumstances or what other people do. The command's not about that. It's about you 
being embittered, you becoming bitter. So whether or not you yourself become embittered against your spouse, that's completely within your control. You are the one who determines whether or not you're going to be bitter. How do you obey the command to not be embittered against your wife? How do you make sure that you're not going to actually become bitter? Well, we see the wisdom of Scripture in a, a number of areas concerning this, but the basic idea would be keep short accounts. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't delay in pursuing peace. If there's a problem between the two of you, take the initiative and seek to be reconciled. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger so that you may hear and understand each other and work together towards a resolution. And as a general catch-all, you know what? Let love cover a multitude of offenses since, if we're being honest, many of the things we get offended by are petty and made more of an issue than they ought to be because of our own pride. Let love cover a multitude of offenses. That's how you prevent yourself from making yourself bitter. Listen, if you, if you bottle up your frustration or anger and let it sit and stew inside of you, and if you dwell on whatever offense you have perceived your spouse has committed against you, you're dwelling on it, then bitterness will start to set in. Here comes bitterness, but I tell you, here comes misery. The more that bitterness sets in then, the more that your heart will become closed off towards your spouse. Bitterness will, will make you not want to love your spouse. That's what bitterness will do. And that's a dangerous place to be. I mean, loving can be hard, but then to get to the point where I, don't, I just don't want to love my spouse. I got nothing. Bitterness does that. It's a dangerous place to be because if you let bitterness take hold of you for too long, it will turn into resentment. And your marriage, this blessed union in the eyes of God, will be on the verge of being destroyed. So Paul warns husbands, the leaders within the marriage relationship, do not be embittered against your wives. Be loving them. Be loving them. So again, if you're doing that first commandment, the other one's taken care of. If I am loving my wife, I'm going to be making myself bitter towards her. So we've seen the first set of heavenly priorities in earth relationships that Paul mentions in this section of the letter. When it comes to marriage, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. This is the will of the Lord. This is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is what Paul talked to. He said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Here you go. This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul had said we are to be seeking the things that are above. This is what it looks like. When you're living out your earthly life and you're seeking the things above, this is what your marriage will look like, what you'll be doing. This is putting on love. This is letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now we must keep in mind that, well, we all fall short to some degree in our obedience to what the Lord commands of us. That's true of all of us. That's why we must never tire in extending each other grace. 
as the Lord does to us far more on a daily basis than we can even imagine. We need to extend grace. Wives to your husband, husbands to your wives, extend grace. And guess what? You know what? When they fail, and they do, and you do too, when that happens, the the failure of others to obey the Lord, you know what that does to you? That presents you with an opportunity for your obedience to him to be tested, to be tested, to be proven genuine. And it's also a part of our maturing in Christ, or it's also that a part of our maturing in Christ is dealing with the the failures of others. Part of your sanctification is, is dealing with the failure of others and also learning from your own failures. We must also keep in mind that while the Lord has commanded certain things of others, something similar was said during the scripture reading, the Lord, you follow me. You submit to my commandments to you. Right? So while the Lord commands certain things of others, we're to be about the business of obeying the things he's commanded of us. The extent of our obedience to the Lord is not conditioned upon the extent of others' obedience to him. Uh, well, yeah, but what about, what about her? What about him? Have you met my husband? It's like, okay. Jesus is the Lord. You're under him. What has he called you to do? So, wives, you may be tempted to think that if your husband isn't loving you as he ought to be, then he doesn't deserve your submission. Husbands, you may be tempted to think that if your wife isn't submitting to you as she ought to be, then she doesn't deserve your love. However, it really isn't about your spouse deserving anything from you. It's about the Lord deserving everything from you and doing these things to please and glorify Him. That's what He did for us, right? He didn't forgive us because we met him halfway, turned our lives around, started living for him, and he's like, all right, now, now I'll love you. No, he pursued, he loved first. So we do these things first in marriage and also in all these commandments towards one another. We're to be about the business of obeying the Lord, regardless of whether or not they're reciprocating obedience. So the question I'll leave with you husbands and wives is this. In light of all that, are you going to be a help or a hindrance to your spouse's sanctification? Just think about that. Are you going to be helping your spouse in their sanctification, or are you going to be a hindrance? Your faithfulness in doing what God has commanded you to do will help pave the way for your spouse to mature into the kind of man or woman God desires them to be. By your obedience, that'll pave the way for them to become the kind of man or woman God desires them to be. And that, that is true, godly, faithful, marital love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your words of wisdom concerning marriage, which is your institution, something you made, something you designed. And we pray that we might embrace your commandments, your will concerning marriage. I pray for all those who have yet to be married that they'll remember these things. They'll cling to them so that they will be set up well when they do one day, Lord willing, get married. And Lord, I I do pray 
that all of us would have your mind on these matters, that we would think biblically, that we would think truthfully, uh, understand the truth, that we might rightly communicate it to those around us. And Lord, for especially for our husbands and wives in here, I pray that they would submit to your will and what you've called them to do so that their marriage indeed will be blessed, not just as an end of itself, that they would just be happy together, but Lord, that you would be glorified by the beauty of that relationship when they are loving one another and working in harmony together in service to you. We know that's a powerful testimony to the watching world, to the unbelieving world, Lord, to see your transforming, the transforming power of your grace and love uh, lived out or experienced in the marriage relationship. It's a testimony to the kind of transforming grace and love that is offered in the gospel. And so we do pray that you'd help us be about the business of doing your will in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.